podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Of pit stop fracker, I am your host Mahad, and today we'll be talking all things tech and regulations 2022. Um, as always, follow us on pit stop fracker on Twitter, follow us on Instagram, pit stop fracker, follow us on YouTube as well. Subscribe, please like the video. And the most important thing, and I've been stressing this for weeks now, guys, please give us a five star review on Spotify. Give us a five-star view on Apple Podcasts. It really does help us out with the algorithm. And please leave a nice review as well. We appreciate everybody's comments and everything like that and how we've grown for the last year. And this episode's a bit of a gift for everybody because usually sometimes we skip when it's not a race week. But today we've brought out an episode and we've brought out a special guest. We have Bryson Sullivan, a.k.a. Natural Paradigm. How are you, Bryson? I'm doing, doing well. How are you doing today? I'm all good. I'm all good. It feels weird when it's not race week, especially after a back-to-back. Um, but we shouldn't be too greedy. We should just be. <laughs> We've yeah. had enough F1 for two weeks. No, um, no, nah, nah, bring it. Bring it more. I want more. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're not going to say that after the end of a triple header later on in the season. But yeah, uh, but yeah thank you for coming on so much. Uh, we, I thought I'd bring on Bryson today to help us out, break down everything 2022 regulations, these new cars, and kind of breaking down and understanding why certain teams are doing well and why certain teams are not doing well. Um, Bryson, first of all, the question that we all ask all our guests is how did you get into Formula 1? Tell us your story. The the story is really kind of funny. Um, I think people would assume that, you know, if you like technology and cars and things, you get into F1 very quickly. But over here in the US, Formula 1 really wasn't as well known to the average person as I think it is now. Um, when I was younger, I did like IndyCar a bit and kart. I used to watch um, even like Alex Zanardi racing back in the day, many years ago. But the first time I actually went to a, a race was kind of by accident. I had some friends that convinced me. Uh, they were very enthusiastic, convinced me to go to a race one random Sunday and just seeing the cars in person, you know, seeing the speeds involved and the performance of these cars. You know, we think like all F1, all open wheel cars are kind of similar. But they're really not. F1 is like a completely different category, even from F2. Um, I was just blown away by the performance of the cars. And I've been a casual fan since then, really, um, but didn't start really getting into it until, you know, a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, really digging into the the, the deepest levels of it. And it's been a, a really fun experience since then. That's great to hear, especially when you hear about... Um... Americans getting into the sport as well um, because I know you guys have your alternative. You have your NASCAR, you have your IndyCar, and um, when I, especially when I was out there, a lot of people did it wasn't into Formula One, uh, especially when I was younger when I used to go out there. But um, I'm seeing that it's picked up quite a lot and a lot it's gained a lot of popularity as well. Um, and it's really good that uh, it's involving the whole world at the moment now. The whole world is picking up this sport, and uh, you meet people from all over the world when you when you talk about the sport as well. <laughs> Yeah, I, I do love the, it, it's a circus. I mean, it, it definitely is a traveling circus, but it is worldwide. And I think the thing that really 
almost impresses me the most about F1 is how global it can potentially be. It's like the one thing we can share between like Japanese people and Mexican people and, and you know, English people, we're all kind of have the same passion. And I think that's a, a really cool thing to have. It's not uh, universal. Definitely breaks down language barriers as well, because everybody knows if, um, cars going around in a race. That's a language <laughs> that everybody can understand. Yeah. Um, but uh, another question we always ask our, uh, our guests, especially for the first time, um, what is your favorite F1 moment? I mean, it's it's no secret that I'm a fan of Lewis Hamilton and Mercedes. The reality of the situation is I actually kind of fell in love with F1 before Lewis even started racing and Mercedes was a team again. Um, but I do love a lot of the things that are associated with that pairing. It's just a really uh, powerful pairing. I would have to say that Lewis winning his 100th race was actually probably my favorite uh, moment right now because it didn't just represent the work of a moment. Like you can get a pole position and be clear by it, you know, seven tenths of a second or win a convincing race victory, but to have, you know, a hundred race victories and a hundred pole positions, um, it kind of suggests that not only was there talent there that we all kind of see now, but it's the hard work to keep pushing for an entire career and produce numbers that, you know, seemed unthinkable uh, in the past. And so the Grand Prix itself, Russia was quite difficult, rainy conditions, you know, qualifying wasn't great, but Lewis demonstrated an ability to stick with it and, and fight all the way to the end. And, in the, and as a result, he, he won that race and, you know, he made a lot of us uh, very proud. Definitely. I feel like that race encapsulates his career in terms of like, being knocked down and coming back from certain situations, especially with the qualifying and the whole pit uh, crash and so on. Um, but I definitely think that's one of his top, top races, especially with the when you consider the conditions, when you consider that um, you had to be smart as well. It, was, it, was, it wasn't just handed to him on a plate. Yeah. That win 100 is, and even now when I think about it, I still think the numbers are fake. I'm just like, what is this? <laughs> those, are, those are video game numbers. Huh? <laughs> this is video game numbers is like when you like make up a character and just like you've been playing for yeah. years. But it's it's unbelievable, these achievements. And they're not going to be forgotten even when you think about it now. 50 years from now, we're not going to forget any of this. He's going to be the top of a, a lot of records. They're yeah. not going to get it broken for a very long time. And when you think about all the way back to 2007, when he made his debut, you think of no way would he ever achieve even Michael status and then look what look what he's achieved this unbelievable stuff yeah I was just gonna say I I definitely love the watching his career from the very beginning and what what impressed me about him honestly in his first win in Canada 2007 he won but it was what he said afterwards that impressed me he said you know I, I've been ready for a while now <laughs> I've been ready to win for a while and that may have been an indication of uh, what he was capable of w one thing I'll say he has undeniable confidence especially when he was younger he was he definitely thought he was the best driver on the grid he was yeah. like even from like 2007 when he's a rookie i'm i'm that guy and <laughs> yeah. that's what kind of drawed me to him i was like okay this kid this kid's got something about him and he's gone on to prove it 15 years later so absolutely amazing stuff and an amazing uh memory f1 memory to uh to speak about but the what we're talking about today is 2022 regulations and um I just wanted to kind of break down everything um, to the actual regulations, what they mean to uh, ground effect cars and do they actually work? So the first question I wanted to ask you is, 
what is uh, what is the main purpose of these? What's the main differences between 2022 and 2021? Uh, these cars visibly look completely different, but mm-hmm. for like the audience, what do, what are their intended purposes? I mean, there there are a great number of changes uh, between the 2021 regulations and the 2022 regulations. All I will do is try to give a highlight of some of the most important things. The most important difference is the shift from sort of flat bottom floors, the old cars, to curved floors with Venturi tunnels and a more reliance on ground effect. And really, in in broad terms, all we're describing is relying more on the floor to generate downforce as opposed to front wings or rear wings or the overbody uh, uh, body work. And the reason why we would do that is not just because it's cool. It, it is cool. <laughs> but the reason why we're doing that is because not only is it the case that relying on the floor more than the wings creates a less dirty flow pattern behind the car, which allows the car behind to follow better, but also the car itself is less sensitive to the wake thrown up by a different car. So those two things together, in principle, should give you more high-speed grip when you're trying to follow someone. And one of the things that was a problem with the old cars is they made a ton of downforce and the current cars do too, but when you got in the dirty air of a car in front, you lost like a big chunk of your downforce. And the biggest upshot to the current cars is that when you're at the same distance behind these cars as you were the previous cars, you retain a lot more of the downforce that you would have uh, versus the, the previous generation. Now you do have a little bit more drag too, right? Because downforce and drag are kind of, they're kind of two sides of the same coin. So the slipstream itself might not be quite as powerful, but that being said, you'll probably have more momentum coming out of the last corner anyway. So the overtakes will definitely still be on. That's one big change on the aero side. On the mechanical side, we've gone from 13-inch wheels to 18-inch wheels. And I can tell you that's not for more performance. <laughs> All right. It's it's for more road relevance. You know, there, there's no real regular cars with 13-inch wheels, but there are plenty of them with 18-inch wheels. And one of the consequences of that is. The 13-inch wheel had a very uh, big and balloon-type tire with the balloon-type sidewall. If you remember some of these cool videos of the sidewall flexing side to side as it goes over a curb, we don't have that anymore. We have a a very thin, low-profile tire that is mechanically much stiffer than the old ones. And because it's much stiffer, it has knock-on effects to every other part of the car, the suspension and how it's set up and the ride height. And these new cars are also being run run much closer to the ground than the old cars um, to maximize the ground effect. And that requires the suspension to be much stiffer. So those are the the biggest changes on the mechanical side and the aero side. The other quick thing I would say is we switched to E10 fuel, which is like 10% bioethanol instead of the normal um, fossil fuel. And that is a sustainability objective. It's just trying to make F1, you know, more sustainable, relying more on reusable energy. But one of the consequences of that is it's a different chemical composition that has a different like calorific heat value, you know, how much energy is it is in it per liter that has different, you know, burn characteristics. And the teams have all had to redesign their engine packages in order to be able to run this new fuel. It, it runs very differently from the old fuel. So all of these things together can mix up the order and catch some people out, you know, maybe some people adapt to it better. Uh, We've seen kind of a a shifting in the form guide from last year to this year. And each of those things is a a part of that story. 
it seems like uh, Formula One's given these teams a lot of hard work to do in a sort of short amount of time. I didn't, I didn't even yeah. mention all of it. <laughs> there, there's oh, other stuff wow. <laughs> There's stuff. You know, we didn't even talk about the cost cap and, and limiting wind tunnel time and CFD yeah, time. But definitely. It's all... I, yeah, the, the limited of wind tunnel time and the CFD and all, all that stuff. Um, I know that was introduced um, uh, last year. And I think, personally, I think that's a good thing um, in terms of laying out the playing field. Um, it's giving the teams that have a smaller budget that are lower down more time to work on things and you kind of seen the the product of that with Haas. Mm-hmm. Um, they've come out with a car that looks much more kind of complete than other cars. Um, so that is a positive consequence to that. But it, it kind of punishes winning at the same time. No, there, there's no question. You don't even have to add the qualifier of kind of. It, it definitely punishes winning. <laughs> I, I think the thing the thing that makes it more acceptable is that it's it's one degree of freedom separated from like the direct manipulation of results. So for example, you could have in Formula One like a success ballast where if you won the championship the previous year, they could like literally put weight on your car, right? That that would be like a step too far. We don't want that. Do something that's a little bit more subtle and it doesn't prevent engineers from being clever. It just means they have to find the solutions a little bit faster than they might have otherwise. So I think I think it's a good thing in terms of making the spectacle more and, and increasing the racing and, and the jeopardy associated with that. But yeah, as a short-term consequence, some teams will will definitely be uh, on the back foot. It's quite quite similar to um, a lot of US sports, like you know NFL, NBA, where you would get the number one draft pick if you've been terrible for the mm-hmm. whole year, and then your team can just turn it around completely. I mean, we are we we are a couple of weeks from drafting, you know, engineers in F one. I'm telling you, we if we're gonna have the <laughs> same the same you know the same show, we're gonna have the engineers walking down with their family. You know, number one draft pick out of this university, Southampton or something. You know, um, but but yeah, that it, would actually it's, be quite cool. <laughs> I, I I well, you know, the tech people love it. I would love to see more emphasis on what some of the engineers are doing in addition to what the drivers are doing because there's no other motorsport where yes, there's a competition between these athletes, these gladiators of of of, of their drivers, but it's a technological arms race between engineers. And there's just as much interesting stuff happening there as, as anywhere else. So I think in the future, it'd be kind of cool to learn more about that. I definitely think um, that side's kind of ignored, especially in the last couple of years as well, where it's become a lot driver-focused, team principal-focused, but you kind of forget that there's hundreds of people working back back at the factory, working on these cars, working on different aspects of these cars that lead to the success of a team. And um, I think that needs to be brought to the forefront because not only is it drivers are racing against each other or team, or constru- it's actually constructors battling each other and it's an engineering competition here. So like you just said, it's a, it's a war and <laughs> people yeah. need to kind of realise sometimes, sometimes, sometimes it is the driver. The driver pushes you over the edge because if he is a quality driver, he'll get, the, he'll, he'll get to 100% of the maximum you can get out of that car. But the teams and all the engineers and everybody working back in the factory are responsible for making that car competitive and, and they should yeah, be given yeah. more credit. They, they should be given credit and, and the drivers help give them the feedback they need to go in the right direction. That's also an important point. hundred percent, hundred percent. So we've, we've seen two races now under the 2022 regs in your eyes. Do you feel like it works or do you feel like um, there's still stuff that needs to be ironed out? Has Ross Braun and uh, Pat Simmons done a blinder here and have changed the sport <laughs> for good? Or is it 
they've they still got the work to do. I, I I think that what I've seen is a resounding success as like a validation of aerodynamic theory, which is you have an idea of what the desired outcome is. We want to have more downforce at high speed, and the mechanism we want to use to achieve that is to you know chuck the wake up higher above and over the head of the car going behind, and as a result, getting more clean air from other parts of the flow. I think that's working quite well, not only visually, just watching the number of races that we've had and how close the cars have been, but there's actually, you know, firm data of it. Um, I think it actually may have been Sam Collins or another one, another analyst who looked at the number of laps in which two cars were within like two seconds of each other. You know, every single lap, check every race and see the frequency, how many, how many, what fraction of the laps were that was that condition met and every single case it was increased. Right. How how close were how many times were cars close with, with one second across the line? How many times was it two seconds across the line or in five seconds? It was just closer overall. So that's really a, a, a positive thing in terms of the raceability of cars that are similarly paced. They have to be careful because even though these specific regulations are designed to allow cars to race each other more quickly and more efficiently, the reality of the situation is anytime you have a massive regulation change, it, it explodes the field, right? Some people get the concept really right. Some people get it really wrong. And there can be a big gap in performance between those two things. And so the field itself is pretty spread out right now. But the cars that do happen to have similar pace are able to race each other better. In fact, their ability to race each other is so good now that they're starting to have overheating problems <laughs> on the cars because they're spending so much time behind the car in front. That That's a, a, a good indicator of how well the regulations are actually performing. With regard to do they need to tweak it and, and tune things, I, I didn't really love the DRS chicken that I've been seeing in the past couple of races where people are racing to not be first across the DRS line, um, the detection point. That's not really great. Um, it could potentially cause contact between the two of them if they have a miscommunication, but I'm more worried about a situation where the, the leaders are doing this, right? And a lapped car is behind them and is approaching at very high speed. Suddenly they come upon them going 100 kilometers per hour slower than they're supposed to be going and braking like, you know, 100 meters before the actual braking point. There, there could be a high speed collision there and that's not something that I want to see. So I imagine there might be some tweaks to how we handle DRS. There might be some modifications, but they're, they'll be doing a few races before making a final decision. It wouldn't surprise me at all if we start shortening the DRS zones towards the second half of the season to make passing a, a little bit harder. But overall, it's been really entertaining. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, your point on the DRS, that's actually one thing that I kind of took away from Saudi Arabia because we saw Max and uh, uh, Charles... Charles going um doing drs chicken on turn 27 which is a dangerous place because in my head i was thinking imagine if carlos Sanz was a bit closer mm -hmm. and he was speeding right behind him in third and then these guys decided to just slam on the brakes and he's full speed or, or uh, out of a drs that's a back-to-back -back drs zone as well so he would mm -hmm. be going into that corner with a lot of speed i don't want stuff like that to happen so maybe there might be changes there's already been calls for like okay why do we need drs anymore um, I don't know if we could go too far just yet, but I feel like straight away, I don't think we need back-to-back -back DRS zones. Yeah, even uh, I actually wouldn't even mind if they keep the back-to-back -back DRS zones, but only have one DRS detection point, right? Because imagine if you have back-to-back -back DRS zones 
but it's only one detection point. So you, whoever's behind, gets the DRS in the first one and then automatically gets it for the second one. It's actually kind of like what we have in Australia coming up. The, the main straight DRS, and then there's that you know, turn one, turn two. There's another DRS right after that, but there's only one uh, detection point. That actually might be a roundabout way to avoid this uh, DRS chicken that we've been seeing. Yeah, uh, uh, the, the drivers are smart. The drivers are smart by actually thinking, okay, we need to do this um, to gain advantage. And um, we can see that the DRS is much, much, much powerful on these yeah. tricks. Yep. They're gaining a lot of speed, uh, a lot of advantage, and it kind of, it kind of, I don't know. Maybe I'm just a bit of an old school guy. I feel like it's a bit artificial. Um, yeah, I, I think the speed that's gained. I, I think we have to be a little bit careful because we're talking about the Red Bull versus a Ferrari, and if you look at their speed traces, and this weekend and also for Bahrain, Red Bull is one of the fastest cars on the grid in a straight line, if not the fastest. Ferrari is like middle of the pack generally speaking, maybe a little bit higher. Um, there's going to be a huge closing speed between those two cars in a DRS situation. It might be more fair to compare two drivers in the same car, uh, Alonso and Ocon, for example. But yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I do. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, uh, the Alonso and Ocon that was a that was a, that was a good battle, and that kind of goes back to your point previously about cars overheating. We could see that Alonso was in a lot of different battles, and then the engine just decided, okay, I'm out. <laughs> following too many cars for too long, but uh, that's an unintended consequence of these new regulations of people driving close. But I think TV wise, these regulations are working for now. But we'll kind of have to see how it works on different types of tracks. Much slower tracks, slower corners. I, I think the next we have, well. the next we have coming up would be a good test because uh, Bahrain actually throws up pretty good races almost all the time, and uh, Saudi has been pretty good the, the two times we've been there. So I think a real test will be uh, Melbourne and Imola. Uh, those are not necessarily amazing tracks for racing, but we'll see how they do, and that'll be um, a good indicator of where we are. Definitely Imola as well. I think Imola does not have much overtakes whatsoever on that track. And another thing as well, that surface is very bumpy as well. Mm. So those teams that are suffering from porpoising and so on, they're going to suffer even more because that track has not been resurfaced in a very long time. But we'll see how it goes. And it's a much cooler climate as well. So um, talking about porpoising, I'm going to move on to uh, a team that most our listeners support. Uh, most of um, most uh, Lewis Hamilton fans obviously support as well. Uh, it's Mercedes. They've had a bit of a slow start this year, um, in co considering they're the constructors' champions and so on. And we've heard a lot of talks about sandbagging in pre-testing. Oh, they're just going <laughs> to get rid of those sandbags immediately, and they'll be okay. They had the no side pods. They've had a lot of innovation going on. Um, but whenever we turned on the races or turned on practice sessions. We could see Lewis or uh, and Russell bouncing down the straight uh, violently, like they're, they're going to get a concussion. So um, I, I kind of wanted to put this segment into kind of, can we calm some Mercedes fans down? It's not it's not the end of the world, is it? What, I, I are, think, what are the reasons? What are the reasons that Mercedes are going through what they're going through? Yeah, I, I think it's such an interesting situation. The first thing you mentioned about the sandbagging is funny because Lewis specifically and Mercedes more broadly has done such a psychological, you know, mind job on their enemies that they never really trust them if they actually appear to have problems. They're like, they're, they're still going to come, and they're 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 right to fear them because this is one of the most adaptable teams on the grid. I think that the positive thing that you can take from Mercedes right now with respect to the issues that they're going through 
they're not in a situation where they've chosen the radical concept, they've maximized the performance of the concept, and then looked at the timing sheets and found themselves seven tenths back. That's not quite what's happened. What's happened is they have a concept that has a lot of potential lap time on the table based on everything that that's telling, um, that's telling them, their engineers, has a lot of uh, performance on the table, but if they try to run the car as it is at the ride height that they want to run it at, they have this critical problem of the porpoising so bad that they just can't run the car there. So what do you do to fix porpoising? You know, ideally, you'd want to fix it without losing any performance at all. And that requires a floor upgrade or maybe something on the suspension to stop the bouncing. Uh, but if you can't do that, the way to fix it is to raise the ride height. Raising the ride height prevents it from getting low enough to actually have kick off that bouncing in the first place. The problem is, you know, raising the ride height reduces your downforce and it increases your drag, right? So you you don't have the downforce that you need in order to to go through the twisty bits, and you also have more drag than you're supposed to have. So it's 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 a double penalty, and so it's I, I describe the performance on the table for the W13 as low hanging fruit. But with this porpoising problem, it's like low-hanging fruit in someone else's backyard, right? Like you have to, <laughs> you have to jump a fence to get over there. But but when, once you get to it, the performance is is there to be had. And this is certainly not a uh, McLaren and Ferrari 2009 situation where both were embroiled in this drivers' championship down to the last race and arguably took their eye off the ball for the, the regulation change for 2009 and just missed a trick with the double diffuser or whatever else, that's not quite where Mercedes is. Mercedes committed to the development of this car in the middle of last season. If anything, Mercedes has gone the other way. They've committed so far in the direction of this advanced concept that they've resulted in something that seems to have a really big performance differentiator uh, associated with it, but it's not, it's not fully cooked is how I would describe it. And I think that's what the cost cap is actually doing is the engineers are still brilliant. They're still finding solutions that they would find otherwise, but they have to get to the final result faster. And because Mercedes won the championship last year, they were in the worst position with regard to CFD geometries they could evaluate and wind tunnel time. So the, the truth of the matter is that regulation changes are always more dangerous to a dynasty than any rival team. The reality of the situation is for Mercedes to continue their domination this year would actually be harder than ever before. However, if there's one team you cannot count out of a competition ever, it is Mercedes because we can you know, say all, all too often, how did the beginning of 2017 look and 2018 look? Ferrari looked very strong and Mercedes wasn't really as strong and in the end, they fought back and won. Now, just to be clear, I'm not equating what's happening now to what happened in those two years, because in those two years, you know, Mercedes was right behind them. <laughs> they were right behind him, even when Ferrari was winning. Now they're a bit further back and comfortably the third fastest team with the porpoising mitigation changes. But the thing is, we know why the car is slow. We know that if you're just able to run the car at the designed ride height, there will be performance there. You just have to get over this hurdle of the four percent. Well, I'll say, I'll say from now. I think for Mercedes fans, they can take some solace that it's not loads of different problems. It's just one major issue with the four percent, and it seems like there's no side pods 
actually works because you have extreme downforce, which a lot of teams are looking for. They're seeking for that. They're seeking that downforce. I'm a McLaren fan. We've got no downforce. I know that. <laughs> no, no, we, we have we have a decent amount of downforce. I, I've seen the, the speed traces. We actually have more downforce than, than plenty of other teams. I mean, if if here's the way to, to think about this: if the Mercedes chassis and engine combination was bad, objectively bad, we should be behind McLaren and Aston Martin, but they're not. They're comfortably ahead. So clearly there's something there. There's the kernel of something great there. What I would say about the porpoising and, and getting it when you have a lot of downforce and maybe not getting it when you don't, that's actually not just like hypothesis. I mean, that's, that's, that's been more or less confirmed. If you remember, uh, McLaren was like being celebrated during the winter test and you know, in the first race is like, hey, this we don't have porpoising. You know, maybe it's because the we have these beautiful vortex structures on the side of the floor. It's still again, we're a much more efficient car, and that's the reason why I don't see that the porpoising. Come to find out, they believe they're 100 points down on downforce relative to Mercedes, right? So the car, the car is not being pushed into the ground hard enough to be able to actually experience this this porpoising issue. So there are several different ways to look at the problem. All of them indicate that Mercedes is faster than they're showing. It's not just blind optimism. It's data-based. It's evidence-based. And I think if you were to ask Charles Leclerc or Carl Sainz or Verstappen or, or Perez, they would tell you they're fighting each other you know, for what they perceive to be the championship lead, but they have their eye in the mirror because they know eventually Mercedes will turn it around. Definitely. I think one thing that I was thinking about um, is the cost cap and how usually a team like Mercedes, uh, Mercedes has dominated and have shown excellence in the last couple of years, especially in the last eight years, because they've won eight constructors in a row. Can you simply just buy your way out of this by just trying to throw money at the, at the problem of porpoising and get yourself out of it? Or because you have this limited amount of wind tunnel time, you have the limited CFD time, is it more of a long-term issue than an overnight fix? It's it's actually even worse than that. <laughs> so not only can you not throw infinite funds at this, but even if you could, the nature of the problem means you can't just solve it in the normal way of doing a CFD analysis or or in the wind tunnel. Because in order to get the car to porpoise an actual wind tunnel model, you have to run it in a condition that would probably damage the belts that the car is, is running on, not to mention the the sting that comes from the ceiling that's actually holding the car in place. That could easily be damaged. And then as far as the CFD goes, most of the CFD that, that most teams are doing, it's unsteady analysis in terms of how the flow is solved, the aerodynamic flow is solved. But in terms of the car dynamically moving as a response to like a real-time calculation of what the suspension loads are and what the air load is and the pitch sensitivity, that's not what it is. It's give me a CAD model of the car. You tell me what the orientation is relative to the ground and how high off the ground it is. Assume a static flow. And it'll give you the drag and the the downforce. That's not how you would find porpoising. <laughs> the only that would help you find porpoising if you see some sort of weird sensitivity of like the center of pressure moving, you know, forwards and backwards with respect to ride height. But even that is not jumping out at you saying you have a problem. So not only can they not spend infinite amount of money on this problem to solve it, but actually, even if they had infinite money, the tools they have would still require some modification to be able to predict and solve this, this particular issue. I think they've taken a very pragmatic approach. Um, they've taken the first practice session of the first couple of races to try out some new hardware and just see at the end of the day, 
does this new floor work? Is it better or worse? And then using that to make their decisions going forward. I think it's a pretty good strategy, actually. Definitely. Um, another thing that I kind of wanted to discuss was is the catching up, the, the development kind of... Um, Whenever there's a new regulation, development is quite fast, especially yeah. in the first half of the season. Is this going to catch up the teams that are on the back foot now? Because let's say, for example, with Mercedes, you're half a second behind your Red Bulls and your Ferraris, and you gain that half a second, but then Red Bull and Ferrari are developing, and they gain another half a second, and you're just playing catch-up for the rest of the season. Do you think it will go down that way, or is it something where Mercedes can actually close that gap and some more whilst Red Bull and Ferrari are developing? I think it's actually the latter believe it or not, because it's not, as I said before, the situation that Mercedes finds itself in isn't that they have a fully fledged concept and they're trying to sort of develop and work on, on how to make this concept even faster. They have a concept that they don't even know how fast it is yet. Like they don't actually have data on what the true performance ceiling of this design is on the track. And if the numbers are to be believed, they actually could have like a big jump in that time from where they are now. Now, of course, this is a moving target. You know, standing still to Formula One is, is going backwards. Ferrari and Red Bull are developing their cars. However, they're not going to find a second or a second and a half in four races. However, there is a realistic possibility that Mercedes actually could do that, not because they've modified their concept to, you know, extract a whole 1.5 seconds or something crazy out of out of the, the car. It's because it's being it's running with one hand behind its back right now. We don't actually know what fully fledged W13 looks like. It could be half a second. It could be seven tenths. We don't know what, what it actually is. So it is true that being on the back foot is not great. But it's also true that the specific circumstances that Mercedes finds itself in could actually allow it to close the gap. And if that ends up coming to fruition and we find ourselves with a car that is genuinely the class of the field in the second half of the season or even before retrospectively you would look back and realize results like you know Bahrain are actually critical to the championship because then what matters is how many how many points are you scoring on your worst day if on your best day you're suddenly the class of the field and you're winning what's ultimately going to decide the championship is how many points you lost when you weren't winning and I think that as I said before results like Bahrain are going to become very important towards the end of the season for sure and it's 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 not it's not like previous seasons where we've had regulation change we have a lot more races the season is much more longer as well so um mm -hmm. you can make that turnaround and have a, a potential charge at the title in the second half of the season especially if you get consistent re results and i think results like barring getting getting a podium out of out of a weekend where when the when the weekend started you think you're not going to get anything out of this especially <laughs> a podium yeah I, um, I just i just want to really briefly say there there's no law of nature that says mercedes has to win okay they have to earn the right to win and i think if people pay attention they would realize that they have been doing that for years they have earned the right to win. It hasn't always been assumed. They've fought for everything that they have. They just really have to do it this time. And I think, I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but I think if we come to Abu Dhabi at the end of the year and Lewis Hamilton is in the fight for the championship, it could potentially win it and somehow actually does win it after the start. I mean, he's the greatest ever. I mean, he's he's the greatest ever. There's no argument at that point. You can't, you're never going to convince me that someone is better and they started off with such a difficult season. No, no, I definitely think that's that's like a special weapon. That's the trump card that Mercedes has 
while mm-hmm. the other teams don't have, you have Lewis Hamilton. So even if you're a couple tenths down or you're getting closer, he is that difference right there. So yes. if he even is within an airshot of a title charge, he can do that. He can pull yeah, that man, man is greedy. He wants titles. He wants the, <laughs> he wants the lot. He wants them all. Yeah. He's a very he's a very greedy man when it comes to Formula One. When he when he when he's looking for those yeah. wins, he's got a hundred of them. He wants more. Yeah, hundred percent. Um, just to talk about the teams that are seemingly in the title race at this moment in time: Red Bull and Ferrari. You mentioned this previously. Red Bull very 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 fast in the straights, and they look like they have a lot of downforce. Um, a lot of people kind of counted them out for this season, considering them bringing developments every nearly every race last season, and yeah. them having a, uh, not a lot of CFD or wind tunnel time, and them developing this car. What what do you think of their performance this season so far? Has it surprised you? It it has honestly. I mean, it, I think everyone could be forgiven for assuming that they would absolutely start on the back foot, right? Think about what Mercedes did. They committed themselves to not developing the 2021 car precisely to produce a design for 2022. And, and we know for a fact, that, as you said, Red Bull bring de- uh, brought developments to every single race, at least up until Qatar, maybe even afterwards. They were clearly spending money on, on that car and clearly were developing it. And yet somehow they still ended up with a very competitive car, you know, maybe even the best car. We don't know. We'll have to see how, how things play out. But they certainly didn't start the season on the back foot. And there, there's certainly a juxtaposition there that's very intriguing to me. It suggests that the introduction of a cost cap does not determine your future. Even if you have less CFD time and one's on time than someone else, you can still potentially come up with something that's a winner. Uh, I, I'll give respect to Adrian Newey, his involvement with the RB18. It's clearly a good car. Whatever else is going on, you know, we can talk about the title fight, but they certainly didn't build a bad car, and they're definitely in the hunt. Yeah, I definitely think um, be, it kind of rewards innovation, rewards you being clever in these scenarios. So Adrian New has been around in the business for a very long time. I think he was even working on cars back in the ground effect there, I think. He, uh, he actually yeah, started actually in the States in, in IndyCar a long time ago before really started to design cars. But yeah, he definitely has experience with ground effect for sure. Yeah, so that kind of give it, giving him the advantage over maybe some other teams, kind of understanding, okay, these cars are completely different. Uh, mm. I, I was quite surprised as well. I, I didn't expect, usually whenever there's a regulation change, whoever was up there, especially when it comes to driver's titles and in a title battle, they kind of fall off. Um, but for them, it looks like that engine is quite powerful as well. Um the, the, we call it the Red Bull powertrains. I'm still calling it Honda. It's still, still Honda. It, it is a Honda. It's, 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 there, right? it's, it's the design manufactured and serviced by Honda. Um, I will not participate in this uh, rebranding exercise currently that Red Bull is doing. It's a Honda. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'll definitely still call it Honda from now on. Um, but yeah, they, they've, they've surprised quite a lot. And then uh, I think they're going to be up there uh, for the majority of this season. But a team that has the opposite scenario, Ferrari. They've been kind of so-called tanking um, the 2020 season. The 2021 season, they kind of nerfed it at the beginning, but they've all, they've been saying for a very, very long time, Matteo Bodotto saying, we're working towards 2022. We're working towards 2022. And it kind of looks like it's being realized now. What are your thoughts on the Ferrari this season and uh, their car? Do you think um, it's one of the best? 
Yeah, I do think it's one of the best. In fact, I think it's actually there are a more realistic chance for the title than Red Bull is currently. The reason why I say that is because, you know, look at Saudi. Uh, it's an incredibly high-speed track. It rewards top speed more than other tracks would be. I mentioned to you that Ferrari has the highest, or the or Red Bull has the highest top speed. If Ferrari can take Red Bull to the line for victory within half a second at Jeddah, they, they're very strong. They're going to be strong in other tracks that rely more on downforce, no question. As far as Ferrari goes, yes, they were tanking in some previous years, but it, it wasn't really deliberate. It was actually because... The, the 2019 season, the level of power, performance and power the engine was, was generating, and then suddenly a discontinuous change in how much power they had available to them. If you design your car around a high downforce configuration under the assumption that you're going to have the power to, to still get decent top speed, then your entire car is built around that concept. And suddenly you're cut back on the power because you're forced to comply with an FIA settlement off the off the books. Uh, suddenly your car has way too much drag for the power that it has uh, available to it. And suddenly you have to cut back on the wing level. You have to modify the balance and the car is completely out of sorts. Even if the chassis is inherently good, it would only be good with a specific engine that you don't have, right? So that, that really ruined their 2020. 2021 was an evolution of those cars. They weren't allowed to design brand new car in 2021 because of the pandemic. They had this token system, you know, to limit how much they could develop. So it's largely the same car, but the very important thing that Ferrari did without developing that car aerodynamically much at all, the most important thing they did was introduce their uh, electrical system, the ERS system. They brought forward their 2022 ERS system into their 2021 car, starting in like Russia or USA. I don't remember which, which race it was. Um, that was like very, very powerful. If you look at the point score between Mercedes, excuse me, uh, McLaren and Ferrari, they're neck and neck throughout the entire season. And that Urs upgrade comes from Ferrari and suddenly it's diverging lines. And so we know that their hybrid system is extremely strong. We also assume that they handled the E-Tank combustion questions very well. For Ferrari. So they have a strong internal combustion engine. They have a provably strong hybrid system. And because they introduced it half a season early, they're going to have an entire year of running that system and understanding it. And they can still introduce a brand new ERS upgrade before that part of the engine is frozen for this engine freeze, uh, for the four-year engine freeze. So not only do I think Ferrari is a real deal uh, overall, and they've done the mechanical, they've laid the mechanical groundwork to do that, their aero concept is really interesting. It's it's amazing to me how very intelligent, smart people don't understand something and assume that because they don't understand it, that the concept can't work, right? The ultimate decider of whether the concept is good is, is lap time. And even if people don't understand how Ferrari's concept works, it clearly is working. I'm talking about the aero, side pods and the wings and everything. So I'm very impressed with the Ferrari. I think people are, they still don't quite understand how much of a threat they represent. If Mercedes does find a way to get back in the title fight, I'm more worried about Ferrari than I am about Red Bull at this moment. I definitely think this is this is why it's called Formula One. This is, people have taken such different approaches to these regulations. We see with the side pods, Ferrari have a, a completely different approach to how Mercedes have done it and how Red Bull have done it. And you can kind of see there's so much different solutions to one problem. Mm -hmm. And that it's good to see that 
a lot of the different a lot of the engineers have taken different approaches to this issue of these. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And and sometimes it's not just about what's the performance today; it's about what's the performance going to be in two months. It's not just how fast is this current version that we have, but what's the development potential? That's just as important as anything else. Yeah, I think as the season plays out longer, we're going to see okay who really got this right. Yeah. When we get to like race week nine, race week ten, and they're still performing at a high level, um, we, we're going to see, um, and we're going to see more development as well. What who's reached their development scene already, or who's who hasn't? Who, um, I don't, I don't think anyone really has because I don't think, has, no? yeah. There's there's two things that have to happen. Number one is the entire grid has to look at everything else that every other team did and figure out what's the best concept right now in the field. That's one step. That's like convergence at a given time step. Then on top of that, as you're marching through time, even the best concepts are improving. They're getting better. They're modifying their, their geometry in, in minor ways that results in lap time. Or you could have a revolutionary shift where someone just didn't have enough time to go over regulations and find a new trick to exploit. But maybe halfway through the season, they're like, actually, we could do this. <laughs> we could do this. So this is like five tenths. And if that happens, then you're really going to start seeing jumps in lap time and also the running order. So I don't, I don't actually think it's fair to say anyone's reached their true performance ceiling because we already know even a team like you know Aston Martin, who you would traditionally think of as being on the back foot, we know that the, the model they're running in the wind tunnel now looks nothing like their car that's racing. And that's precisely because they're chasing new concepts. So it's going to be fun either, either way. So, so the order that so just for fans out there for from different teams and different drivers, the order that's out right now is not going to be the reflective order by the end of the season. You don't think, right? I I think it's change about. I, I think statistically speaking, the order right now is the least representative of the final order in comparison to any other previous season. The beginning of the regulation changes is just it's chaos, and like I said before, this is a technological arms race. It's going to depend just as much on how well you develop your car versus how good it is in race one. Perfect example is, is Haas. Haas, you know, really tanked in 2021 deliberately precisely to have maximum safety time, maximum development time in a really good car. And guess what? They, they were successful. Their car is legitimately good. How do I know this? Because Alpine and McLaren are protesting it. That's the ultimate evidence that your car is good. Okay, trust me. If those two guys are, if they want, if they're involved and they want to protest the Haas, like if you said that last year, the teams <laughs> yeah. are protesting Haas. You'd yeah. think, oh, you're crazy. So that 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 is the ultimate barometer of if your car is actually good in that so, or not. So trust me, it's really good. However, if they don't develop their car this year at a comparable rate to the competition, by the end of the season, they're going to be in the back. They're going to be at the back of the grid, if not off the back of the grid. So it's not just a question of what's your starting point at T equals zero. It's how does that progress as time goes on? It's just as important to decide in the championship. I, I think I think I you might be muted slightly. I can't I can't hear you because you're, you're muted. Sorry, I'm back. I'm back. Okay. All right, I got you, man. Um, one thing I wanted to kind of clear up for fans and everybody that's been talking on Twitter, everybody's talking online, is about the engine freeze. We need mm -hmm. some clarity from you, uh, Bryce. <laughs> what is going on here? So there's a lot of te there's a lot of people panicking, saying the Mercedes engine's rubbish. It's an engine freeze. We can't change it now. What can we do? The Ferrari's <laughs> got a nuclear engine. Look at Haas, look at Alfa Romeo. These guys are flying. What is this whole, What is the situation right now? I know they've introduced this engine freeze, 
but what exactly has been frozen and what is not and what can still be worked on? This is why you have to be a little bit careful. So there's two things. I think I think there's enough evidence to suggest that there there could be some issues with the Mercedes powered unit, but if there are issues, they're not on the internal combustion engine side. They don't appear to be on that side. They, they appear to be on the hybrid side, if they exist at all. And the reason why I say if they exist at all is because given that every single Mercedes-powered team has vocally said they have aero problems as well, one of the sacrifices of, of fixing your aero problems can result in more power consumption, more energy consumption, and you could have what looked like power issues but are really ultimately driven by aero issues because you have more drag than you're supposed to have. But if you do have a genuine hybrid issue, and again, it's not an absolute issue. It's just relative to the competition. If someone has a better hybrid system than you do, believe it or not, the most critical components of that system, namely the MGUK, the control electronics, and the energy store, i.e. the battery, those are the only things that are part of the power unit that have actually not yet been frozen in this engine freeze. Everything else is frozen in March. The, the engine freeze, as far as those three uh, hybrid components, is not until September 1st. So I mentioned previously that Ferrari has, you know, they've been using their hybrid system for since the middle of 2021, and they're going to have some big upgrade coming at the end, uh, towards the middle of the season. Well, that's because it's not frozen yet. <laughs> that part's not frozen yet. So they can, they can add on to it, um, which is to say if Mercedes also finds a way to, if they decide that as part of their game they want to improve, if they want to have more hybrid power, they can introduce something uh, prior to that date and it will be totally fine. And even if that's not the case, you can always make a modification to your engine for the reasons of reliability that has an incidental impact on power. That's a that's a tricky line to walk and I'm certainly not suggesting doing anything <laughs> unscrupulous, but basically there's reason to believe that it's not the end of the world uh, for Mercedes as far as the power unit goes. There, there may be some issues there, but they're they're not uh, fixed in stone yet. I definitely think that's uh, a good point they just made just then, because a lot of people have been uh, talking about Alpine and Renault and why they're trying to maximize power and not reliability. Mm -hmm. And I, I personally think that's a good idea, because at the end of the day, what you don't want to be doing, especially when it gets to the engine freeze, is not have uh, power. Yeah. You want to have the reliability bit you can sort out under the guise of the regs because if your car keeps breaking down, you can, you can fix that. And yeah. we've seen and now Alonso's taking his third engine for uh, Australia. You can see is, that, is that really true? Is that confirmed? He yeah. actually's taking I, I, it. I, I've seen a report today saying he's going to take oh. his third engine, which is crazy <laughs> to me. That's like one engine per race. That's like the old days. <laughs> you got a race so, engine. <laughs> Alfred are absolutely redlining this engine, Renault. They're redlining <laughs> yeah. it to the max. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, to be fair, though, actually, I think they were the second fastest team on the straights in Jeddah. So, uh, um, the, the uh, data that I saw, at least in qualifying, they also did have a little bit of this clipping problem where they were running out of electrical energy on the run to turn 22. That's different from talking about top speed and maximum speed through the speed trap. I understand that. But what I was looking for specifically in the speed traces is in the situation where you're at the minimum possible state of charge, do you ever actually run out? And I did see that Alpine was one of the teams that actually did do that a little bit from the day that I saw. Yeah, definitely. So I think, especially with what we spoke about previously with Ferrari about them uh, making them upgrades to the electrical systems, we're going to see teams doing that 
before the engine freeze in September, we're going to see a lot yep. of upgrades. Ferrari already look fast, so if they do another upgrade, in September, yeah, that's, that's what I'm saying. That's, a, that's what I'm saying. This is this is why you don't have to. This is why Mercedes is such an, an interesting position. It it simply isn't the case that they are, have a fully fledged concept and are trying to develop at the same rate as your competitor. That's not what's happening. There really is the potential for a step change in performance enough to get them in the fight and potentially ahead of the fight. So. Give them time to figure it out and we'll see what they do. Okay. So for listeners, don't panic. Don't worry. I know I keep on seeing images of, oh, look, the lot, the bottom five in qualifying are Mercedes engines. Look, the engine is finished. There, there is like light at the end of the tunnel. There is a plan to all of this. And I don't think it's really representative of what's going to be going down at the rest of the season, I think, anyway. Definitely. Um, one thing I wanted to talk about as well, since we have uh, uh you are technically our first american guest oh so, yeah <laughs> yeah so you're here to represent america we've just they've just announced the las vegas uh grand prix that's going to be taking place in uh 2023 i think it's in during thanksgiving weekend mm-hmm. uh, i think that's what's been announced and we're going to have miami coming up as well what do you think of uh oh, f1 making like a go go hurted effort to try to get into United States and try to get that fan base. We saw in Kota last year the amount of fans that were there. It was unbelievable the amount of fans were at that race. And um, you on the ground in the United States, is it growing? Is it is it something that's gaining popularity? Yeah, it's, it's definitely growing even if you wanted to take the anecdotal evidence of does someone outside recognize me in my Mercedes gear? Like, they do. <laughs> that's the <laughs> anecdotal evidence that it's growing. Um, you know, with with regard to having several races in the country, I people who live here, especially you know, uh, people who have experienced the the full range of possible reactions with people, know that the United States is it is one country, but it really is several countries kind of stitched together. The South is very very different from the Northeast. It's re- it's remarkably different from the Midwest and and the West Coast. It almost feels like they are different countries. I understand that there is some reaction to having more races in the U.S. I think this does not have to be a permanent thing. And even if it is, we want to have a more global championship anyway. Um, Personally, I would actually rather have two races in the U.S. and one race in Africa. That's what my personal thing is. But I can understand the immediacy of, of making this thing work and trying to expand in this particular market. As far as Vegas goes, Vegas is a great city. It's a, it's a crazy city, but I, I love it. It's a, one of the great American cities. It'll be a, a very interesting place to have a Grand Prix. The track layout that they gave us, it's not Spa, okay? It's not Silverstone. I, no one's saying that it is. But it is better than the quote-unquote leaked version that I saw previously that was, frankly, appalling. This is slightly less uh, upsetting, the version that I saw. And I don't think people realize how big it actually is. The main straight of that track is actually comparable to Baku. It might even be, you know, only slightly smaller. It's a very big circuit. And with that combination and the new cars with their uh, new aero, I'm not actually convinced it will lead to a bad race. I think Miami is going to surprise people with how good it is. And I think Las Vegas will eventually surprise people with how it can be. Yeah, I, I when I saw the Las Vegas um, race, uh, the the track, I wasn't like, oh my god, this is terrible. I, I'm not one of those type of people. I think you can see where some overtaking corners could be. You got the long straight on the strip, which is going to be visually amazing. 
Uh, I've been to Las Vegas. It's an absolutely amazing city. And I don't think we should just... I think maybe it's just a common thing amongst F1 fans to kind of like dismiss tracks, new tracks, just like, no, this is not good. Get rid of it. I think we kind of need to take into account, okay, let's at least race there. And if it is rubbish, then we can we can say it's, it's, it's track. <laughs> yeah, can we I, see I, cars on the track first? Yeah, oh, I, I, I'm sure people are are waiting for the exact moment to say that it's actually rubbish. As soon as they have that data, they'll be coming out and, hey, this is garbage. And then you can talk about it. But I just, I don't think that's necessarily the case. And I, I do try to be empirical when I can be. And I think this is something that uh, could potentially be a benefit for us. So I say, let's go for it. Yeah, definitely. I'm quite excited to see what's going to go down in Miami and see what it looks like with the cars on track. I just want to see um, Miami and obviously a great city. Um, I've seen some like weird stuff like a yachts and a pool, like a kind of like a pond, a fake pond, lake going on. Um, I don't look, like that. That's that's that's, that's me. Look, that's uh, it's you, a car park. You you may or may not know this, but you know I am from Miami, and oh, wow. I I personally give you permission to make fun of whatever crazy stuff they do with yachts at a closed <laughs> lake. You have my permission. <laughs> okay, it's all good. I remember I saw it and I was thinking, isn't this outside the Hard Rock Stadium? There's no water there. I don't understand. They're gonna this is. they're gonna helicopter in, you know, the boats and then you know, no, no. That's just to be clear. These aren't necessarily boats or yachts. They're like they're yacht shaped objects. Is how I would describe them. Um, okay. It's just there for the, a visual reference and to look very Miami. Um, you know, Miami really is one of the, the the yacht capitals of the world. It's just that they want to show it off and fine. They're allowed to do that. I can't stop them. So why would I? Why would I get mad about it? I can't stop them. <laughs> Definitely, uh, I'm looking forward to that race. I like the glitz and glamour. We're going to probably see hundreds of celebrities there. From hey, the United States. Mr. Worldwide, so, got to be there. You know, oh, I'm sure. Oh, Pitbull, Will Smith, everybody, they're going to be there. F1, if you're listening, please give me and Bryson tickets every year. We will represent. Yeah, I, will. I will. I will. Because listen, South Beach is one of my favorite places. Honestly, it, it's a good. It's a good time there. Um, yeah. Before we go. Thank you so much, Bryson, for talking us through these 2022 regs. I wanted to go through some Australia GP predictions. For you, I think that's going to be a crazy time. For us, it's 5 a.m. So for you, it's going to, I don't know, be about midnight, the race. Nah, uh, I'll just I'll just have a big night on Saturday. Don't <laughs> don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> um, but we have to show dedication. You know, we, we yeah. watch it at all hours. Um, one thing I kind of wanted to ask first is, who do you think is going to be bringing in some uh, big upgrades to Australia? Because we've had about a two-week break now. So um, who do you think will be coming with some changes? Uh, you know, Mercedes is really trying to have a new floor ready for Australia. My understanding is that it didn't quite make it to be ready to, to be flown out there. Um, but they will have some changes to the floor. It won't be necessarily what they were hoping for, but you know, something will change. Um, Ferrari hasn't seemed to change their car or all that much. And even Red Bull hasn't really seemed to change them that much. I'm not actually expecting radical changes from most of the teams, mostly because they're so far away and I have to fly things over there. Where I would expect to really start seeing things is, is, is Imola. Uh, Imola and Barcelona, when you get close enough to be able to drive parts on a truck you know, to the, to the track, that's where you're going to start seeing some, some big upgrades. Um, Red Bull has something coming. Ferrari does as well. Um, and hopefully they're effective. And like I said, the, the performance ceiling of the 2022 cars we don't really know what it is yet. We're in this development slope. I suspect that by the end of this year or maybe by the middle of next year, we will have cars that are faster than their previous generation cars. 
Um, and I believe that even though they're heavier and the, and the power is different, the performance potential of a Venturi tunnel, you know, ground effect style floor is just is just higher than the flat bottom floors. And so I suspect that as time goes on and teams really sort of zone in on that perfect part of the design space that gives you like amazing lap time, the cars are going to get really quick and they'll be fun to watch. I don't, I, uh, me, I'm a bit wary. I don't like it when it gets too fast. You can't get too fast. If we get if we get too fast, that's when we get borderline dangerous. They, they will. They they'll be they'll be held back. I mean, if if for no other reason than you know, Pirelli will say like we can't make tires that can run these cars. They they will be held back uh, to a certain to extent. But the thing that defines Formula One at any given time in history is these are the fastest Grand Prix cars that exist in the world. There's no machine that can go around a Grand Prix track faster than an F1 car. As long as that's true at any point in time. You know, I'll, I'll be happy. 100%. Yeah. Um, one thing that I kind of uh, forgot to touch on was a lot of these cars are overweight as well. So we're going to mm -hmm. see a lot of these cars stripping weight over the next couple uh, races. Yeah. Um, I don't know whether that will be due to just changing parts to for lighter material or even stripping paint. I've heard. Yeah, we, we have. We have seen some some paint, uh, stripping of paint. And, and just to give you a ballpark number for what we think we're talking about, I think Andy Green from Aston Martin said it was something like 350 grams <laughs> that they saved, and it was it was worth their time as far as their performance analysis goes. So yeah, they're struggling to get down to the weight limit. Um, one thing that was hit upon in a space that I held earlier that I didn't even think about until this guy mentioned it: uh, unconstrained weight increase makes the teams happy because they don't have to make their car lighter. But these are already the heaviest cars in the history of Formula One. We're starting to get to a point where I'm starting to wonder if the barriers these cars are crashing into are actually structurally strong enough to handle that kind of weight increase. Because even if you're going exactly the same speed, if your car weighs more, it has more kinetic energy that ultimately has to be absorbed by the barrier. So are we going to get to a point where we can't even use the barriers anymore? I don't think it's going to be quite that crazy because you have sports cars and other kind of cars that are even heavier. But... It is something that I think about and something that should uh, be kept an eye on. Another unintended consequence of these new regs, I think. But I do think the big body of the car kind of saved Mick Schumacher in, in Jeddah as well, because that was a big, big impact. And if it was a much lighter frame, mm -hmm. know, if, uh, it could have uh, a different outcome. I agree. I agree completely. And, and one of the new changes that I didn't mention for the 2022 regulations is that the amount of energy that the crash structure has to dissipate and successfully not break under is 15% higher than it was in 2021. So the cars being heavier is actually part, partly a consequence of structural weight to pass that new, more stringent crash test. Okay. Okay. Um, before we go, surprise uh, prediction for the Australian GP and your podium. Yes. Surprise prediction is someone takes the turn 11 and 12 chicane flat, flat out, no braking, no downshift, flat. Okay, that's my surprise uh, prediction for the race. Uh, my podium is uh, Lewis Hamilton, Charles Leclerc, and Sergio Perez because I'm an optimist. Sergio Perez, please, just uh, I was so heartbroken <laughs> in that last race. Hey, hey, look, 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 Latifi gives, Latifi taketh away. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> that's how that's how the cookie crumbles sometimes. All right, people are saying that we should uh, all the strategists should put Latifi in their strategy because something might happen. 
Get, bruh, get him involved. Bruh. I, if I if I was a, a tactician for Mercedes, I would have an entire like tabbed page with Latifi on it, and that would be an entire like playbook, the checklist. <laughs> what do you do if Latifi crashes lap twenty three? Okay, you do this. Do that. I mean, half joke and half serious, but let's be real. Let's be real. He hasn't had the the best start, but I'm I'm sure we'll have more interesting crashes to talk about. They'll take attention off him later on in the year. So, hundred percent. Thank you so much, Bryson, uh, for talking with us today. Hopefully, we can have you back as the season goes on later on. Um, tell your tell the audience where they can find you and uh, what content you got coming up. So. Uh, I'm almost exclusively on Twitter. I found out kind of by accident today that I actually got like 20,000 subscribers, which is a little bit weird. I should probably check that out more frequently. Congratulations. Um, I, so I have to think twice about things that I say now because great power, great responsibility. Um, but no, I am primarily on Twitter. I, I do write the occasional article. I need to do more of it. But yeah, we're all just, we're just talking F1 and tech stuff on Twitter and it's a lot of fun. And I, I enjoy doing it and I enjoy uh, sharing information that I do have and People seem to like it. Thank you so much. Um, for our listeners, we'll be back next week uh, with the Australian GP review. Uh, please like and subscribe. Um, please leave us a review on Spotify, Apple Music, Apple Podcasts. And um, please follow us on Twitter and uh, Instagram. And we'll be back next week. Peace. Sports Social Podcast Network.